It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Monday, March 6th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, the NAACP says it will legally challenge the state of Mississippi should lawmakers pass legislation that strips Jackson of its sovereignty. Then environmental justice advocates say the state needs to do more to make renewable energy accessible. Plus, cars coated in yellow dust is a familiar sight this time of year. We examine how Mississippi's ecology contributes to pollen season. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. During this legislative session, lawmakers have been considering a number of bills that could, in some way, strip the city of its sovereignty. The House passed legislation that would establish a special court jurisdiction in parts of the city with appointed judges and prosecutors. The Senate's amended version of that bill removes the language but expands the authority of the Capitol Police, an unelected police force under the direction of the appointed Commissioner of Public Safety. The Senate has also passed a bill that could create a board of supervisors to oversee the Jackson water system. Now the NAACP says if any of these bills become law, they will legally challenge the state. Charles Taylor is executive director of the Mississippi Conference for the NAACP. He tells our Covey Vance Jackson residents are having the power of their vote taken away. If we look at what's been happening in this legislative session, uh, it's unfortunate because uh, our legislator has um, decided to weaponize their power against the city of Jackson. And so this is not something that's just new to this session. It's been an uh, ongoing process. We've seen divestment into the city from the state. We've seen neglect as you could think about the water crisis. But now we're also seeing that they're trying to take over assets or even uh, create scenarios where you ultimately may even have a city within a city. Uh, some of the things that are proposed this legislative session are extremely large. Senate Bill uh, 2089, which would uh, regionalize the, the water system in Jackson or the authority for the water system in Jackson, but, it, it, but, it's, but it's, it's not uh, an honest name because it's not as if they want to take all the water systems in the metro area and create a regional authority. They just want to have regional power over a city-owned asset. And so NAACP uh, has always stood fast, fast, uh, you know, in terms of trying to fight justice 
in Mississippi. We've, we've been around in the state for over 100 years. Um, and so, you know, if the state decides that they're going to pass these bills, then we're going to look at every avenue possible, especially if that means litigation, in order to fight it. Because ultimately, you know, we believe in democracy. And what we're seeing is the quintessential examples of uh, undemocratic or anti-democratic uh, principles with these bills and their intentions. If the bills were to be changed before they were passed, do you think there's any um, chance for them to be changed to the point where they would be what you would consider acceptable? Or do you think that these bills are not going to be able to reach that point? Well, we we are not agreeing to compromise. There is no such thing, that we, uh, no compromise in democracy. And that's what ultimately is uh, what we're dealing with. You know, what I would hope is that these bills fail, uh, period. You know, if if they are happen to be changed and the changes for the good, so be it. But the, the, the bill in its totality is ugly and bad. So it may end up being less bad, but it's still bad. And regardless, if there's anything in the bill that is bad and is not uh, pro-democracy, it's not uh, pro-citizens of Jackson, then we're going to fight it. What do you think makes these bills stand out the most? You know, I, I, it's interesting because it, uh, uh, it it stands out the most to me because of how uh, the state is planned. It's, it, it creates a scenario where the state is a bad actor. You know, what what you should do if you're a state, you should do everything to uh, create a scenario where you are having thriving cities in your state. But that's not what Mississippi is doing, you know. Uh, only three out of 25 times that that uh, that there have been requests to support the water infrastructure in Jackson have those requests been granted. You know, um, if the state wants to support the city of Jackson, if the state wants to address crime issues, how about fully funding education? How about creating more jobs by by uh, expanding Medicaid, which we create jobs and also save lives, not just in Jackson but throughout the state of Mississippi. How about doing things that is positive for your citizens rather than re- versus weaponizing your power? And that's what we're seeing happening. And that is what stands out the most, is that literally these bills are weapons against the city of Jackson. And anyone who says otherwise is being untruthful. You know, what we would like to see, we would love to see some bills that would support the city of Jackson and, and, and all of the uh, you know, 298 municipalities in the state of Mississippi. But it should, it those, but if that is the case, the bill should promote local control. What these bills promote is taking the voting rights, taking, um, you know, the opportunity out of the hands of African Americans and putting it into the, the hands of just a few, quite frankly, old white men. What do you think this could mean if these measures were to pass for other municipalities in Mississippi or other major cities across the South? I'll tell you this. If these measures pass, it is dangerous precedent. If, 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 if I am a Democratic legislator or a Republican legislator, I should be nervous. Because what this means is that any time the governor or the legislator doesn't like the current leadership, 
And this could be inner politics, and this could be inner party, or it can be opposite party. Then they can just go into the legislature and basically functionally try to take over parts of that city. That is dangerous precedent when you're taking that power out of the hands of local citizens. But also, you know, looking at this from a perspective, not just in Mississippi, it's dangerous because you have, there are several southern cities that, you know, are, are comparable to what Jackson looks like. But these majority African-American cities that are in the backdrop of red states. What happens when they say, you know what, I don't like this. So we're going we're gonna to segment a piece of Atlanta off, and we're going to create a city within a city. We're going to do the same thing in Birmingham. We'll do the same thing in Memphis. You know, we may do it in, in other places, not not in the South. You know, uh, these types of this type of anti-democratic governing is alarming for not just the South, but throughout the country. And I would hate for Mississippi to make this dangerous precedent. And bringing it back to your announcement that y'all are considering legal options about these bills. While I understand the bills are still not final yet and y'all probably haven't cemented anything, what would a legal challenge to these bills look like potentially? Well, you know, that's what we're exploring right now. And we, would, we wouldn't know until the bill passed. But, you know, we have been in conversation. Uh, we're ready to go. If they pass, we're ready to go. If they don't pass, we're ready to say thank you. Um, you know, what, what, what I hope is, and, and what our aim is, is to be ready to fight and be ready to protect the citizens of Jackson, even if that's from its own state. Charles Taylor, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you talking with us today. Well, thank you. Coming up, environmental justice advocates say the state needs to do more to make renewable energy accessible. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. It's made possible in part by contributions from podcast listeners. Please consider making a contribution by going to the Donate Now tab at mpbonline.org. Thanks for your financial support. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Mississippi was one of the last states in the nation to adopt net meta, let me get this right, net metering rules. Those rules make it easier for homeowners to invest in renewable energy like solar. The state recently updated its rule book with incentives for low and moderate income residents. But as Danny MacArthur of the Gulf States Newsroom reports, environmental justice advocates are still pushing for more. Nearly seven years ago, Leah Campbell and her husband, Matt, decided to install solar panels on their home in Ocean Springs, Mississippi. This is the south-facing slope of the roof. It gets direct sun. This creates energy that they get to sell back to their power company. In this size home that we have, our power bills were really high, and so we wanted to see if that would be a way that we could reduce our energy bill. The Campbells did that, 
because several months before, Mississippi created its first set of net metering guidelines, basically a rule book for people who want to use renewable energy and stay plugged into the public power grid. It lays out the specific rate that homeowners can get for producing their own power. With the net metering, we saw our energy bill reduced by at least a half. It sounds great, but fast forward to today, and there are fewer than a thousand homes that use renewable energy in Mississippi. Installing solar can cost several thousand dollars. We're fortunate in that we were able to afford being able to finance it, install it, but a lot of Mississippians just can't. Now, the Mississippi Public Service Commission has revised that net metering rule book and added some new incentives. But critics say the rates the state set for compensating people who generate their own power are enticing enough to make them want to participate. So why are Mississippi's rates so conservative? Commissioner Brent Bailey says the new model for net metering in Mississippi was based on things they saw in the other Gulf states. And we hope that you know, those lessons learned from other jurisdictions and states can be applied here, and that's something we intend to do. In Mississippi, your hour of solar energy is typically worth less than that hour would cost if you bought it off the grid. In some states, like Arkansas, it's a one-to-one trade-off. Every hour of energy you create offsets an hour of energy you might have consumed from the grid. So that's one end of the spectrum in the South. And then, of course, there's states like Alabama that really, and and some would say, creates disincentives. In Alabama, homeowners are actually taxed for solar power they generate. And while Mississippi didn't go that far, Bailey says they also didn't want to go down the route Louisiana took. At one point, the Pelican State had generous incentives for its net metering customers. But those were gutted in 2019. Bailey says it had a roller coaster impact on businesses, homeowners, and the solar economy in Louisiana. While we may not have the most aggressive set of rules as some would like to have seen, uh, we certainly have a set of rules that I think will help you know support the industry as it grows. Some of the new rules target low to moderate income Mississippians. Those customers get reimbursed at a slightly higher rate and they get a one-time incentive of $3,000. And there's no way that they can afford to uh, invest in a $20,000 solar project with a $3,000 incentive. That's Glenn Cobb. He's a community advocate in Gulfport who says the state's new rules don't go far enough. Cobb thinks communities should create their own solar programs. That would bring down the cost that we are paying for energy right now. One group, the STEPS Coalition, is working to develop a community solar farm in the Mississippi Gulf Coast area. The costs and savings can be spread out among hundreds of residents. Jonathan Green is the executive director of the coalition. He says the current rules make it expensive to get the project off the ground, in part because it costs a lot of money to connect to the public power grid. So at the end of the day, we've got to have some successful models in the state. And I think that once we can stand up some successful models, then we'll start to see momentum. And Green says they'll keep pushing residents to stay engaged, especially low-income Mississippians. They spend more of their income on their power bills than residents of any other state. For the Gulf States Newsroom, I'm Danny McArthur.
The Gulf States Newsroom is a collaboration between Mississippi Public Broadcasting and public media stations in Louisiana and Alabama. Coming up, cars coated in yellow dust is a familiar sight this time of year. We examine how Mississippi's ecology contributes to pollen season. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. If you aren't near a radio, you can still listen to MPB Think Radio and MPB Music Radio. You can download the MPB Public Media app for your smartphone or listen online at mpbonline.org. On Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, you get information about foods you should eat to stay in good health and tips on how to stay active. I'm Josie Bidwell, host of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit and Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Listen to the show every Monday at 11 or subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy with your preferred podcasting app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Temperatures are rising, plants are blooming, and Mississippians are likely seeing pollen covering their cars, yards, and homes. According to the CDC, symptoms of allergic rhinitis, more commonly known as hay fever, affect as many as 60 million people per, per year in the U.S. To better understand why this yellow dust gets everywhere this time of year, our Michael Guidry talked to retired horticulturalist Felder Rushing. Felder, we're at the time of year where people wake up in the morning and they see their cars caked in a, a yellow dust. What is it about the Mississippi flora that that produces so much pollen this time of year? Yeah, well, first of all, I, I sleep with a window open every time, so I wake up with a pollen in my nose. And a lot of people think I'm cheerful this time of year. No, it's the antihistamines, you know, plain and simple. Uh, I'm allergic, you know, I'm a garden guy, and I'm allergic to everything that blows in the wind, the grasses, the trees, uh, the ragweed, all that stuff. Uh, and it goes up my nose, and I can get into the, in, into the metal, uh, medicine of it. But... What happens, we have some flowers are pretty. They're pretty, they're colorful, they smell good, and they they develop that way to attract pollinating insects because their pollen has to be carried from flower to flower. Sometimes they pollinate themselves, uh, bees and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a, a lot of them haven't developed that. They, they're they wind-pollinated. They're not pretty. Uh, oak trees, you never notice the flowers. Pine trees, nobody, uh, ragweed, they don't have pretty flowers because their pollen uh, is shaking loose and it's like really, really fine dust and it blows in the wind and coats the female flowers nearby. See, so uh, in case of, of oaks, pecans, separate male and female flowers on the tree. The female flowers look like tiny little clusters of acorns, and they won't make acorns unless they get pollen. Well, the, the male flowers, those wormy-looking, they call catkins, look like worms hanging off the trees, and they fall in your gutter and all that, but, but those are, are loaded with pollen. You thump them, and it's just like a dust of pollen floats off, and what happens is the wind shakes the pollen loose and blows around and gets on the female flowers. Real quick thing, pecans are that way. Uh, if, if we have... A lot of rain, when pecans are blooming, it washes the pollen off, pollen, and we not going to get pecans that year. See, so pecan growers are always hoping for a dry first part of April so they get pecan crops. Interesting. So you mentioned pecans. You mentioned some, some other flowers. Are there any plants, uh, any flora specifically, uh, that, that, that people associate with Mississippi 
um, that that are the kind of the the root causes of all this? Who do, who do people have to blame, or what do people have to blame? Okay, well, first of all, most everybody in the fall blames goldenrod. Goldenrod blooms is a beautiful plant, and everybody's sneezing like crazy. They look around, they blame goldenrod. Goldenrod is in the same family as sunflowers and zinnia, heavy pollen. Must be carried by insects, okay? But meanwhile, there's another plant out there, this big generic green plant, doesn't have showy flowers, called ragweed. And it's got tiny little yellow flowers, but you thump that, and it's just like a cloud. But ragweed blooms, you know, makes me sneeze. When you look around, you can't see it. You see the goldenrod. So a lot of stuff gets blamed. If it's pretty or if it smells good, chances are you're not allergic to it. We do have a plant called ligustrum that a lot of people plant in their yard. Really, really intensely fragrant. And I think, I used to think, nah, nobody's allergic to that because it smells good. It's pretty. But tr- I did some research and they found that people are allergic. Some people are really allergic to that real sweet smell. I could get into the, to the medicine of it, but in Anyway, you can get allergies from plants that are pretty also. But anyway, a lot of people blame ragweed, uh, blame goldenrod. Uh, a lot of people don't realize that the oaks and pines are shedding a ton of pollen, but also wild grasses don't have, you know, they're blooming like crazy. Right. They're not showy. And uh, I'm allergic to a lot of the grasses that are, that are blooming right now. You, you travel the world. You travel the country. This spring pollen season that that we are so accustomed to in Mississippi, how does it compare to other parts of the the nation, other parts of the world? Well, any place that has a lot of trees, a lot of grass is going to have it. I mean, Texas, West Texas doesn't have many trees, but they got a lot of pollen, a lot of wind-blown pollen. They don't have a lot of pollinators. So uh, pretty well everywhere you go, there's going to be plants that are wind-pollinated, and people are going to be allergic. Not everybody's allergic to it, you know, like poison ivy, uh, but I am. Uh, Everywhere you go. But folks need to remember that we live in Mississippi in what used to be a solid forest you know we we you know we do farming and parking lots and all like that uh, but we live in a in, in forest country and so a lot of our what they call primary species top species walk away from your lawn 10 years later it's going to be trees because that's what grows and a lot of those trees are pollinated by wind so everything that blows in the wind so, so wear a bandana take some antihistamines relax Close your windows at night. But you don't. I, you know, I'm I'm old school, man. I'm right. old school. And then finally, looking at the the cycle, the plant cycle, and all of this, when uh, when can Mississippians expect the the window to close on uh, this on this pollen season? December, January. We have something in blooming from from late winter right now uh, through the spring, through the summer, and into the fall. But typically late winter and spring when the overwintering stuff and grasses bloom and a whole lot of stuff in the fall, but uh, all year long, all year. Well, Felder Rushing, thank you so much for for sharing a little bit of information on on what causes all this pollen. (laughs) Excuse me. (laughs) Coming up in part two of our look at seasonal allergies tomorrow. Uh, and allergies can be a comorbidity that makes many other disease processes just a little bit worse, especially for things like chronic conditions such as asthma or even COPD. Having an upper respiratory component to it that's making your lungs work a little bit worse can make things overall a little bit more difficult for our patients. We talked to an allergy specialist about symptoms, causes, and preventions. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.